This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hello, everyone, and welcome to XYZ, the podcast about CNC, automation, all sorts of fun stuff. My name's Aaron Goff. I'm the owner of Goff Custom Knives, and my co-host here is Craig. Craig Lockwood of Chop Knives. How are you, mate? I'm good. I'm good. It's been a while, hasn't it? We didn't have a show last week. It's yeah, been... and we're coming back with some sad news, aren't we, mate? We are. We are. Should we just drop it straight in? Or just drop we... it in. Just... We'll drop it in. Yeah. Um, Rip off that band-aid. Yeah, and, and now the end is near, and so I face the final curtain. Um, I'm not sick. <laughs> um, I'm I'm handing over the complete control and reins of the show to Aaron, um, simply because I don't have the the mental capacity to do much more at the moment. To be honest, I've got a lot going on at the moment, um, and it's become a struggle every week um, to sort of carve out the time um to uh to do the show um because it's not, i mean it's not just the show the show we you know we do for our sort of each week um but you know it's the prep for the show and you know editing and you know making sure we got content for the show yeah. um it's it's yeah it's it's a bigger task than i thought it was going to be um and <laughs> things have changed around here so i'm just super super busy unfortunately but the show's in good hands i mean this is all a cover story i i fired him He's fired. <laughs> That's what he is, yeah. Here, <laughs> yeah. You buying these cheap, shitty machines. What are you doing? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, I mean... it's, it's, it's sad to see you go, mate, but I do understand. You know, it's... Um, life happens. Yes, yeah. And, and this show was always a case of um, yourself being the the master and myself being the young Jedi <laughs> trying to learn from you. And Yes, Padawan. <laughs> so I mean you've got you're the one with all the knowledge to drop so I'm glad that it's this way round that the show's continuing um, with you um, rather than just with me trying to fill time for an hour each week <laughs> no well I mean yeah I mean I want to put that question to our listeners like um, you know should we continue should I continue I have a, a potential co-host in mind and he's Ooh. I've talked to him a bit he's he's on the fence you know I have some guests that I want to get on that kind of stuff but like you know, is is the show something you guys have been enjoying? Do you want to see it continue? Just let me know. Um, yeah. I think people have been really enjoying the show, and you know, I, I I've enjoyed doing it too. Um, but you know, mm-hmm. the feedback I've got from people is that it's 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 good, and they they enjoy it. So I, I well, but I think, think when people think your stuff is shit, they're less likely to tell you. Ah, you know. Ah, that's so if you think the is. show is shit. Just, just tell us. Tell us. Don't even. Just give it up. Come on. That's a good point. That's yeah. a good point. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, I really enjoy it. Like, I enjoy the catch up. I enjoy like um, talking through the stuff that I've, you know, been excited about this week. Yeah. Um. So it's been great for me. But yeah, you know, who, who knows? Well. Yeah. We'll see what happens. Exactly. Exactly. So I mean, what has been going on? Is I say it's been two weeks since we since we last chatted. Yeah. Um, I've been working on my folding knife design a lot, um, and then trying in vain to, uh, make myself do normal work in between. Ah, I have seen pictures of that knife. Now, 
I was on um, like a really bad 3G connection because mm. our internet went down here for a couple of days. So the 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 mail came through and you'd put them as attachment in the mail and they and were like, like super slow loading on my phone. Right. And I was like, oh, okay. So the first one was like, okay, that's really cool. Then like the next ones were taking ages. Like, come on, come on. I wanted to throw my phone at the uh, at the wall. But uh, it's, it, it looks really impressive. And it looks sort of fully formed. It's not, you know, it's not a rough idea. It looks as if you've got everything down. Uh, uh, yeah, so like I have the the shape uh, of the handle and blade and that kind of stuff that I want. The the biggest issue is the locking mechanism. Mm. Um, I'm trying to do something a bit different, and that difference always hard. So we'll see. So um, when you say the locking mechanism, what kind of locking mechanism? Um, well, so that's the thing. I'm actually not using one of the off the shelf locking mechanisms. <laughs> I'm trying to do it uh, from scratch. Ah. build so um we'll see we'll see how it works out like the, the current goals are for the locking mechanism to be fully encapsulated inside the pivot of the knife so right, you okay. could like drop it in sand drop it in water whatever the the locking mechanism is safe from contamination hmm. um but yeah everything in a folding knife is tiny like all this stuff yeah. has to fit into such a small space so it's been yes. a fun design challenge <laughs> I've been working on mine for probably six months, mm -hmm. um, and I've now ordered all like laser part, all the bits. Oh, cool! So, um, so yeah, they'll be coming within the next sort of. They're, well, I mean, I'll need to test them and all sorts, so they won't be available for a couple of months still. Um, right. But I mean, I've I've got different criteria, I suppose, for a, for a folding knife, uh, simply because a lot of my customers are mm. UK based. And the legalities of carrying a knife, and I'm, and I'm on this knife to be, you know, a pocket knife that you'd keep with you. Yeah. The legalities in the UK are different to the rest of the world, should we say? Um, yes. So there can't be a, a locking mechanism, um, and the blade cutting edge can't be bigger than three inches. So it, it's very sort of restrictive. So this locking mechanism you have. Mm -hmm. um, is it is is it something that you like physically need to unlock to open the blade, or yes. is it like like a friction folder where you, you could sort of? Yeah, no, no, it's like a a proper uh, right, physical okay. physical lock. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I did consider just doing like the equivalent of a slip joint where it kind of gets held open by spring pressure, but yeah, um, yeah, I like knives that fully lock up. Mm. So yeah, it's it's. It's been fun. It's been a real challenge, like trying to design a lock from scratch, you know, like everything under the sun's almost been done already. You know, the, yeah. the, the stuff that's easy is what happens all the time. Frame locks and liner locks, you know, mm. those are pretty straightforward. So, yeah, trying to make something that is actually possible to build and fits in the knife and works is, yeah, not, wow. not, hard, not easy. But. So you're doing all of this in Fusion, I assume? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and I've actually been doing the um the motion simulation infusion. So you can define, you know, like the blade rotates around this pivot point. And yes, then this yeah, spring yeah. expands on this axis and this part moves when the spring pushes it on this axis. And then you can actually like open and close the knife in infusion. Yeah, and you can sort of capture that as an animation then as well, can't you? Sort of automate yeah. it and that's cool. Yeah, and I mean honestly, I haven't I haven't done anything more than the pivot um, in this iteration. Just be, you know, the first time around, I went crazy. I was like, you know, putting motion on everything. But I'm on like the fifth or sixth, like pretty much complete rebuild at this point. So, 
it just wasn't worth the the effort. Yes. Yeah. But I'm sure once I have like a finalized design, I'll do all that so I can get the animations and stuff out. Cool. So what you showed me was particularly awesome because <laughs> you'd 3D printed them, and it's a work in night. Well, with with obviously not 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 hard very pointy steel yeah. blade, um, but you know it. The mechanics are working, um, and the 3D print quality mm -hmm. was incredible. So I'm assuming you bought a new printer. Yeah, so I bought the printer we were talking about last episode, which is the mm. Elegoo Mars 2 Pro. Yeah. Um, and really, the Pro and the Mars 2, there's not much different difference. The, the Pro just has, like, a carbon filter in it, and that's it. Okay. Yeah, in all other ways, they're the same. And, yeah, the, the print quality that comes out of that thing is, is pretty nuts. Um, I'm very, very impressed. Like, they're, they're by far the nicest 3D prints I've ever held in my hand. Um, so, so you showed me a picture of a, a threaded nut, basically, yeah, or a, a threaded hole. Nut. Yeah. Yes, yeah. What, what, sort of, what size was that? It was like M1.5. Wow. And it was yeah, functional. It's functional. So, wow. yeah, like, like threads off the printer do work. They're a bit tight. You'd have to... Um, I haven't really been through the process of like dialing in the tolerances on the printer. Like in your slicer, you can go through and say, oh, the printer prints, you know, this much oversize. And then yeah. you can dial in the tolerances. I'm sure if you go through all of that, then you would get working threads right off the printer. But, you know, I can, I can get a bolt into the threads. It's just tight. So yes, I just yeah. quickly run a tap through by hand and then done. Like it's a working wow. uh, threaded hole and yeah, I mean, so one of the other things I've been mucking around with for over a year now, I've been trying to work out how to make what's called a scout carry mount for my sheaths, which is people want them to be, be able to mount sideways, so like the blade horizontal, yeah, on the back of their belt. So when you're hunting or whatever, it's out of the way, you can sit down with it there. I mean, you can with a standard belt loop, but some people just like the scout carry better. Yes, yeah. Um, and yeah, so like I've looked at 3D printing those uh, with like a filament printer at home and they work, but they just look like shit, you know, like they don't <laughs> look good. And then I had them printed at um, Shapeways, like the 3D printing service. Yeah. Yeah. And they look fantastic. They work great, but they're like $15 US each, Oh, you wow. know, for this okay. little bit of plastic that's like... And what is know, the turnaround time with that as well? Weeks, weeks and weeks, like... Ah. Three or four weeks, yeah. Um, whereas with this printer, so I, I went through and I worked out all of the costs involved in printing one of these little things with the printer, like the alcohol use, the power use, amortization of the printer, you know, all that kind of stuff. And it's still like a dollar forty per, oh, wow. yeah, per per mount. And they look like they're injection molded, like they look ridiculously good. Um, and I'm at the point where I'm actually like putting textures into the surface of the model in CAD and oh, then wow. printing the texture and it comes out perfectly, like exactly as you would imagine. Um, crazy. And this is, yeah. I mean, this is a relatively cheap machine, isn't it? As we mentioned last week. Yeah, it's... it was $300 Canadian. So it's like 250 US. It's Wowzers. very inexpensive. And I was really expecting the post-processing, like with resin prints, you have to like, wash them in alcohol and then um, dry them and then cure them. Um, you know, I really thought that was going to be a pain in the ass, but honestly, it's very, very quick. It doesn't take much time at all. So what was the, 
sort of print time then on the the models that you showed me of, of the folding knife? Thirty three minutes. What? Yeah. <laughs> okay. Okay. So the funny thing is that um, with these printers, so every layer takes the same amount of time. So you set the exposure time for each layer. So the exposure ah, you, time yes, is like... Yes, yes, yeah, you said. Yeah, like, you know, so it has to shine UV light through into the resin. And you set up how much time it has to shine the, the light for to cure the resin properly. And it'll depend a bit on what the resin is. Like some resins are designed to cure really fast, but then their mechanical properties aren't that great. Um, other resins are designed primarily for their mechanical properties, but then they don't cure as quickly. Um, so, but it doesn't matter how full the layer is. It'll cure the whole layer in one shot. So the print time's really only determined by how tall your model is. That's yeah. it. Um, and you could know, really so, nest them on the on the bed then, couldn't you, and get the most yeah. out of that? Because, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So like the other day I had to print a tiny little, tiny little lock, lock button for the, for the folding knife. I wanted to make one that was just a very slightly different size. And mm-hmm. it took like 21 minutes for this thing that's like three millimeters by three millimeters, you know. But then a whole bed full of folder parts is like 33 minutes yeah yeah wow so (laughs) for production that it's actually awesome so like for those scout carry mounts that i was just talking about um a bed full of those so 10 at a time would take i think it was two hours and 10 minutes two hours and 15 minutes Hmm. um but printing one takes two hours and 15 minutes it's the exact same amount of time wow yeah. Have have you thought about a mount where it swivels so you could have it, you could have the blade then, um, you know, sort of yeah. down the leg, or you could then swivel it. But you'd obviously need some sort of locking mechanism then, wouldn't you, to, you know, to hold I, it in place? I haven't. Um, but, like, the immediate problem that comes to mind is that then in the vertical position, it would be, it would ride too high on your hip. Ah, okay, yeah. Right, because yeah. my normal mount, my normal belt loop hangs down, which kind of puts the knife at your at your hand level. Yeah, um, yeah whereas this would be mounted on the body of the sheath itself, so it would be gotcha, too yeah. tall. Um, but yeah, just super, super impressed. So I've got some more resins on the way. Um, the The resins vary, like, wildly in their mechanical properties. Like, some are just brittle and stupid, and mm-hmm. others are completely indestructible um but but kind of soft and and gummy you know so right yeah um there's a company called soraya tech that make uh different resins and they actually advocate blending their resins together so they have one resin called tenacious which is the kind of indestructible but kind of soft um and basically you can mix that one into their other resins um okay and get your own mix on the go right okay yeah to you know get the the optimal properties so yeah i'm gonna try some some weird stuff over the next little while like belt loops i, I currently make those from nylon webbing can i print them mm. you know can, could i print like a flexible tough belt loop out of out of uh you know i i don't know so i'm gonna try it nice and how would you attach it using like eyelets then are you and just yeah i do i do it the same thing already like that the belt loop has like a mounting plate that's permanently attached to it and then you um bolt the mounting plate onto the sheath um yeah so and the other cool thing is that like you can buy um pigment kits so the resin you know is sometimes it's colored sometimes it's like white or black or gray or whatever but the companies that kind of aim at engineering a lot of them seem to make their resins clear or as clear as possible and then you can buy a pigment kit like literally cmyk pigments like what a printer would use yeah 
and you can mix them in you know varying quantities to make custom colors like on demand yeah so it's pretty much like as if you're pouring resin where you can get the, yeah. the different colors and you can get that um not not, not sparkly but you can get some that got some really sort of marbling effects and that kind of thing Could you, that's cool. yeah you can't quite do marbling because the printer kind of mixes the resin up as it's as it's printing Oh yeah, um, obviously yes, yeah. Through that, yeah. yeah, you can do like um, glitter and stuff, like mica, uh, like the little tiny sparkly flakes. But they do tend to settle out. So I, I've I use some black um, mica pigment as my first attempt at making um, the black resin, and it settles out a bit more than I would like. Okay. Yeah, but the the actual like black pigments that are like a liquid work really really well. Nice. Nice. So yeah, I th- I think I would recommend you getting one. I think you should get one. <laughs> if only I had the time. Yeah. So I mean, this is a resin printer, and my experience is only with a a filament printer. So mm-hmm. we'll go into that in just a sec, like the different types, because you know it used to be a case of you know you get a filament printer, that's all you had. Now yeah. there are plenty of options, not just in the printer, but in the uh, the actual printing material as well. So yeah, I mean, I mean, we've got lots in the notes here, so we we can we can mm-hmm. go through them in a second. But I've got good news regarding my laser. Oh yes, finally. As I say, finally, it's probably been here probably ten days now. But um, as promised, I received the power supply. They've sent two. Nice. Um, that that's how confident they are in <laughs> sending me one. Um, but yeah, slotted in, rewired up, and it worked perfectly oh, so that fantastic. was a huge relief because i was thinking oh no if it's blown this sort of laser tube mm-hmm. um it's obviously very expensive so so that's good so i've been doing a lot actually with um brass over mm. the last week or so so um a friend of mine another knife maker um he was making um basically display cases for these knives for this big company he was working with so he wanted some brass right. plates and i'd never done it before with brass and um brass actually it looks beautiful on brass you get a real sort of faceted edge um mm. it looks it looks really nice so yeah lots of brass um and it's just working if anything i'd say slightly better than before and i think the only reason for that is because i had to take everything apart and i've put it back together and maybe the alignment is slightly better or something but um right. yeah very pleased very pleased so would you still recommend this this laser that you've got to other people yeah yeah i would um simply because the alternatives are six or seven times more expensive so how much um, was this thing free <laughs> yes there's I know. a long story behind this i know but, um, i we talked about this on a previous episode but they they like fucked up their delivery or something yeah 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 that but they actually sent me well, i've had three from them it's, it's a long-winded story but um 50 watt fiber laser um is run about three grand um from china mm. um on all the you know alley sites um and that's euros three three thousand euros there's right. import tax obviously that you need to pay because it's coming from china um which in my case was run about 400 euros right. um but yeah i mean the alternative is um you know one of the german machines or a u.s machine and you're probably talking 16 to 25 grand for a you know a similar capable yeah. machine yeah and there's a company in the states called boss laser that make mm. um so basically they do like they buy chinese machines and then they do like u.s upgrades or they oh, right okay yeah or they have them made to their specs and then they you know kind of upgrade them but um i'm just on the website now just to remind myself yeah it's still like nine grand 
US for one of yeah. their lasers. And I mean, most of them are using Raycus lasers anyway. All come, right. all come from the same factory. Right. Um, but if you think of like, a, it's basically in a PC case, um, you know, the old 18X cases. It's in one of them. Um, and it, it, it does the job. It, I mean, it, this one did break because of the power supplies. They're mm-hmm. obviously using cheaper components around the laser. Um, but my thinking is if these can be swapped out easy enough, which they seem to be, you're good. The the one problem, I would say it's a problem, but it's it's a bit of an issue. Is the it's it can only be used with EasyCAD, which is the software. Right. Oh, EasyCAD. You said that EasyCAD was, two rather. You said that there was an upgrade that you didn't get that would have made it so that you could swap out the control board and use a different software or something. Yes. So there's the control board, which um, which is basically locked into using EasyCAD. And I've since found out that it's it's a pirated version of EasyCAD they give you. Because if you download EasyCAD 3, which is the new one, it won't work. Mm. And when I'm doing some investigation, they're like, oh, do you get it from China? I was like, yeah, well, yeah. You use like a a cracked version, basically. Um, So, yeah, it's locked in with a sort of hardware to to that software. and it's not the best. It's very yeah, only runs on a PC. Um, very sort of buggy and crashy. Um, right. Doesn't always recognise that the laser's plugged in. Um, and it's one of those things. If the laser isn't plugged in, you can't save the file because it says. Mm. Funny enough, the error message: the dog is missing. That's because it's all <laughs> Chinese, and it comes up: the dog is missing. What it means is the dongle. Right. Um, but yeah, there's lots of these little things. You're just like, oh, this isn't this isn't a slick experience with the software. Mm. Um, lots of SVGs. It just comes up as absolute garbage. So you need to, you know, export different types, different file types, and all the rest. But you're really talking me out of this. I know, but but <laughs> once you've got it going, the I mean, the print quality is. I, I say print quality because I, I think of it as a printer, basically, right. um, is is incredible. It really, really is good. Mm. Um, and I said, you know, the alternative is, you know, so many times more expensive. So if you're a bit of a tinkerer, which obviously you are, um, I, you know, I, I'd advise it. If you're somebody who wouldn't be comfortable opening up the case and as it, swapping out whether it's a power supply or wherever it would be, probably not the best thing for you because it would be a very expensive paperweight. Yeah. Honestly, the thing that worries me most is I don't think your one has an enclosure, does it? It doesn't. It doesn't. Yeah. No. Um, you do get goggles. <laughs> oh, yeah. Great. Goggles. You do get goggles. And, um, and are they made in China, too, for a very they low cost? Are. Yeah. They are. <laughs> I did actually buy an, another set, which are yes. slightly better, and they sort of wrap right around, so there's no... Oh, that sounds ha- helpful. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but um, it's, the, it's the fumes that surprise me, actually. So... Mm. Um, you know, you use it in a, obviously a, a very ventilated place. If you're doing, you know, the odd one or two bits, fine. But, I, you know, like myself, you'd probably be doing it the way I do is do a whole bunch of knives at once. Um, and, yeah, you can then, you know, leave the room, come back into the room and go, oh, my God, I didn't realize there's fumes everywhere. So When you say fumes, do you mean like dust or is it like actually like a smell, like an odor? It's a smell. It's, so it's, 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 they smoke, it smokes. So yeah, when you're doing the laser, you can see the smoke coming off, and that that vapor or whatever it may be is, I ex- assume, extremely toxic because it must it's, be vaporized metal yeah. coming from the metal. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. So so yeah, it's it's you know it's it's not good, but um, like any other machine, make sure you know vent well ventilated or you know. Well, I think you've talked me out of it. I was thinking really? about it. Yeah. Ah. 
Mm. Yeah, yeah. But I know um, three or four other knife makers um, from hearing me talk about it on Knife Talk. Um, mm-hmm. They've they've now gone on and bought them, and they're very happy with theirs too. So, um, yeah, I uh, you know it's a purchase. I'm glad that I did. I don't I don't regret it. And um, yeah, I. I, I sort of, uh, I sort of say, yeah, buy one, but with the proviso that you may need to do some tweaks. Right. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, the option on my end, it, what I do currently for like serial numbers and stuff is, um, I actually have a tool. I think it's from L two CNC. Oh. Um, it's a diamond drag engraver. Mm. Um, and it's really really cool. So it basically uses like a conical diamond um and it, it's like spring loaded and you push it down against your part and then drag it around using g-code you know using a tool part oh right okay yeah. yeah and as you drag it around it it kind of uh you know drags a little furrow into the into the steel yeah um but it works really well and it looks nice. really really good um so, yeah, I mean, one of the other things I could do is kind of make like a little or, you know, even just buy a cheap CNC router and then replace the spindle with the drag engraver and then yeah. have that as like a dedicated setup. Because the biggest problem for me right now is that if I want to engrave a finished knife, I, ha- I have to put it on my um, Fidal, on my VMC, and use my same, my normal fixtures that I use for making the knife. And oh, those okay. fixtures aren't designed to not mark the knives yes, right so yeah. once i've got like yeah. a you know a perfect hand finish on it or the dlc or whatever then i put it on this like dirty fixture that's covered in chips and like bolt it down you know with an impact gun like yeah, it's not it's, it's I, I always pucker up a little bit every time it's not the ideal thing, yeah. yeah. I, I tell you what, um, I, I don't know if you ever saw what Toma from Florentine Knives used. Um, he, he's actually got one of the lasers now that I bought mm-hmm. um, because he does a lot more cost, custom stuff. But if it is just a case of doing serial numbers or that kind of thing, he had um, a pantograph before, right. um, which are obviously aren't CNC machines, but they are awesome. <laughs> have, you, have you seen these? Yeah, I have. They're big, though, man. They're pretty big, yeah. And you obviously need, you know, a plate that you're going to be copied from mm-hmm. as well. But you, you know, you can buy, you know, a set of numbers and you can swap them out for serial numbers. So, it, yeah, if you're doing a bunch, it probably would take a bit of time. But um, yeah, another option maybe, and they are pretty cool. Yeah, they used to be used for everything. Like if you were making an injection mold back in the day, you know, mm. it would be, um, and you needed like a logo or something on it. It would be done with a pantograph. Um, I actually saw a really nice decal pantograph for sale a little while ago um you know it was like two grand or something for this like four foot by four foot old cast Hmm. iron machine you know but yeah i just i don't think i can do it i don't think i can bring myself to (laughs) you want to be able to press a button we get you yeah yeah we get you (laughs) so we we mentioned 3d printers and um we talk about 3d printers you know most weeks because it's (laughs) you know it's they're awesome and they're, and they're very cool, yeah. Plus, um, I, I just, I don't think that you, like, particularly with something like a resin printer, I don't think that you can pack in more capability in a small space. You know, hmm, like, yeah. the, that resin printer that I bought takes up less than a square foot of bench space. Um, and it's basically completely silent and uses, you know, almost no electricity. And you can 
make just incredible stuff with it. Like it's it's pretty amazing to have that capability. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, for those who haven't done any 3D printing or wondering what the hell we're talking about, um, as I, the only experience I have with 3D prints is filament printers. Um, mm-hmm. So having a MakerBot years ago and... Hello, are you there? I am, sorry. Oh, sorry. You know, we cut out there for a second. Um, and yeah, having some really old janky machines... Um, now have the Prusa Mini, mm-hmm. um, which is probably the smallest machine I've had, but it's ex- it's just to me it seems extremely capable. It's you know it's 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 a nice machine and it's relatively cheap. Um, but as we talked about, you know, in, in the previous show, there's resin printers, which is what you just bought. But there's a bunch of other types as well, aren't there? Oh my god, there's so many. I put a list. I, I was I was like <laughs> racking my brain trying to think of everything. I put a list in the in the show notes. Yeah. So like, just in case people have not seen all the different technologies, there's a lot of them. So there's like filament, like which is FDM, resin, which is what I just bought. So you know, uh, UV sensitive goop that gets turned into a thing. Uh, then there's powder bed fusion, which is like selective laser sintering of plastic or metal. There's selective laser, selective laser melting, where you're actually melting the powder rather than just like sintering it together. Polyjet, where they like jet um, little droplets of plastic onto a build plate. So it's kind of like a filament printer, but spraying out little droplets instead. And then binder jetting, where you're firing like glue onto a powder bed. And all of those have, like, subtypes. You know, like, there's, there's different types of, of each one. And the capabilities... I mean, so the problem is, really, that the only ones we can afford are filament printers and resin printers, pretty yeah. much. Yeah. And those are the, sort of the, the consumer units, I suppose. You yeah. Know? When, you know, 3D prints first come out, they were... I say they were very janky. Um, I, I suppose MakerBot made the first sort of consumer, you know, branded, I suppose, um, you know, common um, 3D printer, which yeah. is a filament printer. And, you know, a, th- a filament printer, for those, again, who, who are not quite sure, if you imagine a, like a garden strimmer. No. Those, lit- those no. strings of plastic that keep breaking every <laughs> every five minutes when you're trying to strim the floor. If you imagine a big reel of something similar to that, and it gets fed through a hot nozzle, if you like, mm-hmm. um, and then that nozzle moves around on you know X Y Z axis, and you know prints something, and it, co- it cools quite rapidly. So as soon as it comes out the nozzle, it, it, it generally gets pretty hard, and it, and it moves around. So that was the sort of old school original three D printers. Um, yeah, I I actually don't know whether that or the resin ones came first. Oh, right, okay. Yeah, right. like, because the resin ones have been around for a long time, too. Um, it's just, you know, obviously, originally, they were really expensive. Um, yes, yeah. So, your your laser... Oh, sorry, I just whacked my headphones. Your laser is um, what they call a Galvo system. So, it has yeah. two mirrors that are controlled by little, little tiny, super high-speed servos to kind of shine a, a laser beam around in different directions. Yeah. And... All of the early resin printers used that same system. It basically had it upside down, um, you know, with a piece of glass, and they were shining the laser through into the resin tank that was above. Oh, right, okay. Yeah. Um, and the expensive resin printers still use that system. So if you go and you buy, like, a, um, a Form Labs uh, printer or something, that'll be um, a laser system. Hmm. Um, the interesting thing is, though, that, <laughs> like, the 
you know, so all of the companies that are making like super cheap consumer resin printers, like they're forced to make compromises, right? So instead of using that laser system, they decided they would use like a, initially they were using projectors, um, you know, like, like what you would use in like a home theater, except they were shining UV light instead. And yep. then they went to the LCD screen system that, you know, many of the, the printers use now. So they just have like literally a UV light bulb at the bottom. And then there's an LCD screen in between the light bulb and the resin. And basically they just, you know, turn on and off pixels. And then anywhere where the lights are allowed through, it cures the resin in that. To mask it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so they call that masked SLA. Um, and the interesting thing is that like... Um, they can actually reproduce finer details that way than the laser systems can because the dot size in the laser is like 70 microns whereas mm. the pixel size in the like current generation of lcd printers is 50 to 35 microns it's actually smaller oh, yeah. um and if you have a, a bed full of parts with the laser it has to spend longer shining the laser around so you don't get that same advantage of you know, each layer taking the same amount of time. Yes, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's interesting. Like, I looked at the really expensive ones, you know, and even, uh, so Zor there's a company called Zortrax that make, like, industrial, kind of entry-level industrial 3D printers, and they make a resin printer. And in pretty, every, pretty much every measurable way, it's equal or worse than the printer that I bought for 300 bucks. 300, and it's, yeah. yeah, it's like four grand US, five grand US, I think. Are there any considerations to be made in the sort of design process? So when you're, you know, d designing your your file to be printed, mm -hmm. are there any considerations to be made there with resin, resin as opposed to filament, rather? Um, it's very similar to filament 3D printing. Like, you know, you can't just print something out in the middle of air. You have to support it somehow. Yeah. Um, the thing that'll kind of do your head in is that it's upside down. Everything happens upside down relative to a filament printer. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, because the build plate's coming down into the tank of resin and then lifting up your part. Um, mm. And it's not really gravity that would pull your part off. What's actually happening is at the bottom of the resin tank, there's like a really thin film of what they call the, the FEP. It's a fluorinated ethylene poly something or other. The FEP. The FEP. And it's, it's really thin. It's like 100 microns thick, so it's like you know, 10th hour thick. Um, and it's stretched super, super tight, almost like a drum head, like a, the skin on a drum. Yeah. And when you... So the basically the, the build plate comes down and gets immersed in the resin tank, and then it leaves a very tiny gap in between the, the FEP, in between this transparent plastic sheet, and the build plate. And then the light shines through and cures the resin in between the, the FEP and the build, build plate. And right. it sticks onto the build plate. And then it pulls the build plate up and it, the FEP kind of stretches, which allows it to peel off from the edges toward the middle. Okay. So yeah. it actually makes like a little punk noise, like a little, like, like if you were just tapping your finger on a, on a snare drum, like yeah. you know, as it comes off. <laughs> but that, that suction force, if your print isn't adhered well enough, that suction force will actually pull your part off the supports or off the build plate. Right, Sorry, my okay. puppy is going crazy here next to me. <laughs> is the word fap? Yes. Yeah. Um, so, so adhesion is 
like the biggest problem with well not the biggest problem a huge problem with filament printers mm-hmm. so getting that first layer to adhere to the bed um without without you know everything moving around and all the rest of it yeah what generally once you've got that first layer down you can be pretty confident that the rest of the print will be okay so most spoiled prints certainly in my, in my experience with filament printers have been on that first layer right I mean, how, with a resin printer, how how are you setting that then? Is is that a manual process or is there a sort of um, leveling system? Yeah, so you just level, like the leveling process is so much faster. Basically, you, right. you um, release a couple of bolts on the build plate and then it has like a spring-loaded swivelly head kind of thing. And then you just press home and it lowers it all the way down onto the FEP and you just put a sheet of paper in between the FEP and the build plate to, okay. to establish your like first layer height. And it kind of gets pushed down onto its springs and then it stops there and you just tighten up the bolts and then that's it. Gotcha. Um, gotcha. And then, I mean, as long as you're kind of gentle with the build plate and don't smash it around, then you don't have to do it again. It's like a once-off process. Um, and yeah, that's, I mean, that. and then basically you set the exposure time. Um, so like for my first layers, I'm exposing for 50 seconds and then for regular layers, it's two and a half. And that's it. That's like basically all the settings. Whereas with a filament printer, there's like a billion settings. Yeah, you know, traction rates and all. Yeah. Yeah. If you if you dig into the settings for doing a filament print, there's so many. Whereas with a with a resin printer, it really is just like there's like three or four. You know, that's it. Um, so I, you know, when I first got my three D printer, it was like failed print after failed print, trying to get things working. Um. With this, it was like I I was kind of brave and I tried some difficult stuff right at the start and I had like two failed prints and then since then everything's worked. Nice, nice. Um, so somebody's got maybe three four hundred bucks looking for a printer. You'd 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 recommend the resin printer that you've got then? Yeah, I think so. Um, okay. If you want like super super high resolution, they do also make. Um, so there's a company called Frozen that make. Um, a printer called the Sonic Mini 4K, and that actually has a smaller screen than my one, but almost double the resolution in that right. smaller screen. So it can print um, details down to like 35 microns. And the, where that shows up is if you have like a really shallow taper. So imagine you have you're printing like something like the Eiffel Tower. You know, it's mm. it's it's or like a pyramid. Um, Basically, you'll see like tiny little steps as you're yeah. going up because it it's with a resin printer and with the LCD type, it's either on or off. It, it's not really able to do like in between steps, right? Mm. Um, with those pixels, so with with that um, higher resolution, you'll see less steps, or you know they'll be smaller, like almost invisible. yeah, smaller steps. So this seems like less. Yeah, yeah. gotcha. Um, but you know what? Like even my printer, which is like the fifty micron one, the reason I bought it is because the build plate system on my printer is much more sturdy than the one on the Frozen Sonic. Um, it looks like it's just much more heavily built, um, yeah. and it's a little bit cheaper. Um, yeah, it's I've just been super impressed. Like I think that those um, sheath mounts are actually going to become my first production three D printed part. Oh wow! Okay, that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. so I just have to work out the resin, and then we're good to go. 
So you mentioned with my laser, it was maybe the fumes that were putting you off. Mm. How are things with the resin printer? Because not so much the fumes, but I think they smell, don't they? Because you you can smell the resins. Yeah. Um, Really? So the one that I bought has like a little activated carbon filter built in. Um, The funny thing is it has this activated carbon filter, but I don't think that there's a way to like easily replace it. (laughs) because <laughs> they're like a consumable item you know they eventually yeah. get saturated with with smell um, and then they stop working um that, that's the title for this show saturated, saturated with, with smell. smell yeah there you go <laughs> um yeah so i mean when it's printing i can't smell anything the only time i really smell anything is when i'm um like pouring out the resin mixing the resins um and i mean it doesn't smell great but it's not super offensive um and, but apparently that really depends on the resin too like some just don't okay. smell at all some are like horrible um so like if that was really a concern for you then you could you know find the least smelly resin and just use that um for me the materials properties are the primary concern um but yeah i think if i was going to set up like a build farm which i may be doing you know a couple of printers or whatever then i'd probably put everything in like a fume hood right okay. um yeah you know and either exhaust the air outside or have like an activated carbon filter kind of yeah so, so you mentioned the you you can get down to sort of texture level yeah. service details with regards to the software um i assume you're using um speak i cannot i've got so much going on at the moment use infusion yeah you use infusion can you use like like texture maps to, to just like lay over things you know what this is something i'm really struggling with actually because you can't so you can't oh. yeah you know so like in, in software like blender you can you know take a, a sphere like a perfectly round thing and then apply a texture map to it that makes it look bumpy yeah. and then in your renders it looks bumpy but your underlying 3d model is still just a sphere the underlying 3D model hasn't been changed. Ah. Yeah, so applying textures to 3D models is really difficult. Um, so, like, if anyone has some suggestions for how to do this, like, please tell me. I really, I really need to know. Um, mm. So I've done some texturing in Fusion. So I did, like, a hexagonal grid um, and then, you know, kind of embossed the borders of each hexagon. So it, it came out as a really cool pattern. But Fusion hates doing that like i'm talking like you finish a sketch infusion and then you click emboss and then wait 30 minutes oh wow okay yeah (laughs) like it it really fucks with your your drawing like badly enough that i'm actually not doing that in the drawing where i created the model i've actually created like a separate design just to imply the texture because it's Mm. I think that there's like a chance that it's going to crash my computer and make me lose data, you know, like, Oh geez. Yeah. So I really don't know what the solution to that is. Um, there are sculpting programs like ZBrush that allow you to work with 3d models in a more natural way. But looking through the documentation for that, I wasn't able to find out whether texturing something was, was a thing that it does, you know, and then blender, you can theoretically do it again, but it like the process seems wildly complicated and it might destroy your geometry. Oh, um, yeah. So yeah, I'm I'm struggling with that part. Hmm. Yeah, well I, well I certainly can't help you with that. <laughs> oh, come on, Craig. <laughs> yeah, and I mean what I'd really like to do is like reproduce the texture of Kydex 
So like the material that we use for our, our sheaths, the, the sheet material actually comes with like a, like a wrinkly, leathery kind of texture. Yes, yeah. yes. It's, it's quite random, but it's, yeah, it's like grainy almost, isn't it? Yeah. And the way that they produce that in industry is actually they don't bake it into the 3D models. Um, what they do is they actually do like a, a, um, a photo engraving process or like a laser engraving process even. Like they make the mold and then they apply like a pattern to it um, using like a UV resin and uh, a projector basically to like project the pattern on and then they use acid oh, wow. to etch it away um or they use a, a laser like yours um wow so yeah i really have no no idea how to like do that on a more reproducible level hmm. um you need a laser see there you go yeah seriously <laughs> but like that would take it to the next level because then the parts don't look you know when you see a part that's just smooth and you know you can kind of see the the little like layer lines and stuff like it's very very faint but they're there you know you're like yeah. well this is 3d printed but in the couple of parts that i've done where there was the texture on it it just looks like a really expensive injection molded part yeah yeah i can imagine yeah <clears throat> it sort of hides hides the, the layer lines yeah and they look hmm. beautiful so it's it's totally worth trying to get that sorted out i just don't quite know what the next step is with that yeah yeah Okay, okay. So another big advantage of a resin printer is is speed. As you said, if, if you particularly if you're nesting stuff like a bunch of parts, it's it can be pretty quick. Yeah. Um but I, I've got here in the uh show notes about vroom settings. <laughs> as in vroom vroom. Yeah, exactly. What's all that about? So it's kind of interesting when you say speed, like historically I've always thought of resin printers as being really slow. And up until recently that's actually been pretty true. Um and the thing that changed it is that so previously they were just using the the LCD screen in the printers was just like straight out of, you know, some cheap tablet basically yeah. or like a phone or whatever. But they've actually started making custom screens that are black and white rather than being color. And that means that you have um, pixels that are clearer to UV light, if that makes sense. Hmm. Yeah, um, yeah. So it lets through more light, which means that they can be much faster, like 10 times faster in terms of exposing each layer. Um, and then the conventional wisdom is that when you're peeling the print off the, off the FEP, off the, the, that, you know, transparent drum skin at the bottom of the resin vat, that you should do it really slowly. And that's what pretty much every printer does. It comes off really slowly, like three millimeters a minute, and then it speeds up to make a little bit of space and then it comes back down really slowly. But some people have just been like, fuck that. Let's, let's try max speed, you know, and it works. Oh, okay. Um, and so you're, you know, you're getting this huge speed advantage from the black and white screens. And then if you change the print settings so that it just kind of rips the print off the, the transparent thing at the bottom of the vat, then you can decrease your print settings, uh, your print time, like another 40%. Oh, wow. Okay. Um, that's a, yeah, it's a big improvement then. Yeah. yeah, which means that that folding knife thing that I was printing would be printing in like, what, less than 20 minutes. Hmm. Um, nice. which is like, that's pretty crazy to be able to go from like a 3d model. Oh, I, I just want to see what it feels like if this bit's a bit thicker, you know, and then boom, print it in like, you know, 10 minutes, 15 minutes and like, holy yeah. crap. 
So, so going from your 3D model to printing, I mm. assume you're going to need a slicer like you would if it was a filament printer where you literally have the, your layers being sliced up. Yeah. I assume it's the same for an SLA printer. Yeah, and unfortunately, with my printer, at least when I initially got it, the situation was like you with your laser with EasyCAD. It was like... So it, came, it comes with this software called Cheetu Box, which is actually pretty good if you're just doing like a simple little model. Um, but then when I started to get into like a full build plate, and like lots of supports and stuff, it was just churning. Like it would freeze and lock up my whole computer for like 30 minutes. Mm. Um, like literally 30 minutes. The, the first folder um, parts that I printed, I spent three hours trying to slice them and then 30 minutes printing them. Oh, wow. It was okay. utterly brutal. Um, but it turns out that there is an alternative, which is called lychee. lychee. Um, and it's beautiful. It works great. It works oh, on nice. Mac and Windows uh, and Linux. Um, and, yeah, it's fantastic. Like, it just works. And the supports oh. are actually way better than in Cheetu Box. Like, they come off more easily. Yeah, because, I mean, Prusa now make a uh, an SLA printer, and I know mm -hmm. they just use their standard sort of Prusa slicer mm. um, to be used with that. So I'm wondering if you could change settings within that to work with yours. or. Um, good question. I think the different printers, like the firmware... The, like the control board in the printer, they accept different formats. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. and the one that I have um, accepts only Cheetu format. Um, you know, so I think that it would have to be designed for that printer, which... Specific, right. Yeah, yeah. so Lychee is like designed, or Lychee or however you want to pronounce it, is designed as like an alternative to a bunch of different software. So it'll actually talk to like pretty much all the SLA printers. Hmm. Um, and yeah, it's just super, super nice and easy to use, you know, like adding supports and stuff is easy when you, so with Cheetu box, you click export and then it just freezes and it's doing stuff, but it doesn't show you that it's doing stuff and you have no idea whether it's straight in. Yeah. Yeah. You have no idea whether it's going to be really quick and it's working fine or if it's going to take forever. And for me, it would be like, so I, I would launch Cheetu box. I'm slicing like this really complicated file, doing supports and stuff. The first time it works great. Okay, now I want to make a little change and I try to re-export and it just freezes. But it, it, you can't tell the difference between it working properly and freezing. Mm. Whereas Lychee actually shows you as it's exporting each of the layers and it gives you like a progress bar. You know, some some basic shit right there. But yeah, it works, yeah. right? Makes a hell of a difference these little things. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, like knowing that it hasn't crashed and frozen. So. Yeah, I would definitely recommend that. Like the pro version of that is like two bucks a month. Like it's it's very reasonable. Okay. Um, and is that all sort of in the cloud or is this a, a downloadable? It's a downloadable thing, but it has, yeah, you have to have an account and all that kind of shit. Ah, I, I believe you can contact them and just buy a perpetual license for a particular type of printer. Um, so like I could contact them and just say like, give me a license for my Mars printer. And then I, don't know, I guess it'd be like 50 bucks or a hundred bucks or something. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I might do that just cause I like having stuff that works if the company ceases to exist. Yeah. It's yours. Yeah. 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 Um, yeah. But yeah, Cheetu box is like fully offline. Like that'll just work. It comes on the USB stick you get with your printer and it'll, it'll just work as much as it's going to work. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. As much as it does work. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. But you know what I need? I need a better FAP. If, <laughs> You're if really you've got any suggestions Craig, uh, for so a if better So you guys FAP. don't know, but like Craig is really uh, <laughs> teeing me up with these 
notes out of the show notes. It's hilarious. Yeah, you know what? Maybe that's enough resin printing stuff for one week. Okay. Maybe okay, that's okay. Enough. Well, we've had lots of interactions with um I was gonna say with our customers then. <laughs> what what the hell? With our listeners. Are they paying us now? Well, uh, no. <laughs> uh, with our listeners. So should we just read some questions off um, or from Instagram? Yeah, there's a couple of good ones. I, I think we should talk to uh, Scott Hoadley. We should talk to him. Okay. Um, yeah. yeah, let's do that one, and we'll see how okay. we are for time. Let me, read, let me read Scott Hoadley. Again, on Instagram, he contacted um, XYZ Podcast. So it's, hey, guys, thanks for responding to my questions a few episodes back. Aaron, you pushed me in a new direction with suggesting the VF1 instead of the Mini Mill. Yeah, so we're talking um, about since, Haas machines here. Yeah, since, since then I've had the Haas sales rep sitting at my kitchen table, and it looks like I'll be moving forward with the VF2 SS later this year. Yeah, I said last time, Scott, that's a bowler move. <laughs> he says, what desktop CNC would you buy if 12 grand uh, dollars uh, was your upper limit? Um, he doesn't want to invest a lot of money in tooling for something like a Tormac when I have a real VMC coming soon. So what are your thoughts on the Haas desktop mill? Um, it has the benefit of learning how to run the Haas controller, just like the one I'm, got, I'm getting and can do all my handle scales, keeping my larger machine free. Yeah, so this is interesting because I think that the answer is don't do it. Yeah. So wait there, is Scott saying he's going to buy another machine whilst he's waiting for yeah. a bigger machine? Yeah. He's... And he's got 12 grand for this he's... sort of in-between machine. Scrooge McDucking in cash over there. Wow, Scott, we need some tips from you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, so the, the Haas desktop mill, I'm not sure if you've seen it, but it's like yeah. it's like your shitty little CNC, but with a Haas controller on it. Yes, I've seen it. Yeah, so I think it's a bit ridiculous, personally. I think it makes a lot of sense in, like, an institutional learning setting. So, like, in a university or a high school or something. Yeah, and I think that's what is sort of its main purpose, isn't it? Looking at it from the website, yeah. it seems to be for, yeah, educational facilities. Yeah. And I would argue, really, the only advantage there is that then, potentially, yeah, you're going to have people coming out knowing how to use the Haas control. And, the, you know, Haas in the States is... You know, they're everywhere. So that makes sense. Apart from that, there's like no point. Uh, I I wouldn't buy one. Um, you know, I would rather buy what Craig has, the, the shitty little CNC for like 600 bucks. Because ultimately the capabilities are going to be pretty similar. Right, okay. I, you know, I, I and I as far as like using it for handle scales or something, I think that once you've got a real VMC... You're not going to want to fuck around with that little CNC router for very long. Because, like, you're going to be having to, like, machine handle scales out of sheets and using tabs. And you're only going to have one tool available. So, like, if you have some feature on the handle scales that's a different size that that tool can't do, now you either have to do it on the other mill or you have to manually change tools on the little mill. Mm. Um, like, meanwhile, the VF2... That that has a table that's uh, 30 inches by 16 inches. So, like, it's pretty big. And if he's getting the SS model, that means it comes with a 30-station tool changer. Oh, wow. And it changes tools in, like, a second and a half. Like, it's it's a pretty quick machine. So, <laughs> like, you're going to have this little shitty CNC router, and, and, you know, you'll learn to use it and stuff. And then this beast is going to show up. <laughs> and you're never going to want to touch that little CNC router again. So, you know, I think if you're going to buy, like Scott, if you're going to buy something, 
buy a shitty little machine off Amazon, have some fun learning CNC with the little machine, but don't spend like five or six grand or 10 grand on a machine unless it has a tool changer. Yeah. 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 So the, the Haas software, mm-hmm. um, can you just download that and sort of play around with it? I think that they're, they have like online training courses. This is actually what I was going to recommend. I think they have online training courses and the online training courses have like, I believe they have like some level of emulation of the Haas control. You know, it's not like a real control, but you like click through fake buttons and I I don't know, it teaches you the control. If you're interested in learning the control, I would say do that. I, I don't think that buying the Haas desktop mill to learn the control is a good idea. Yeah. Okay. I mean, resale values would they, would they be much? Do you think? You can imagine if they go into educational facilities, they wouldn't be able to buy used. They'd probably have to yeah. buy new, and they probably got you know finance deals and all the rest anyway. So, like Haas machines mm-hmm. in general keep their resale value very very well. Um, like okay. if you buy a mini mill or a VF one or something, like yeah, you, you'll you know if you sell it five years later, you probably get like eighty percent of your original <laughs> price oh, for wow. it. Like, okay. it's pretty nuts. Um, the desktop mill, though, like, no one in industry is going to be able to actually make use of that. Hmm. You know, so I don't, yeah, as you said, I don't think it's going to keep its value. Scott, spend that money, go on holiday, just wait until your big yeah. machine arrives. You'll be, fine. You'll be fine. Or save that 12K and buy an even larger Haas, like buy a VF3 instead of the VF2. Or throw some options on like if you're looking at the vf2 ss that means it comes with high speed machining option by default which is great because you'd want that anyway but like maybe buy a faster spindle or buy the the chip auger or something um Mm. i think there's a lot of better ways to spend that money for sure or just send it to me so my bank details are (laughs) exactly (laughs) just paypal it's fine yeah yeah (laughs) Okay, we, we've got plenty here. So uh, 540 Styles on Instagram um, said he's a hobbyist knife maker and a wannabe machinist. Um, for the money, would a smaller Grizzly benchtop mill, and he says the G0463, um, with a heavy metal CNC conversion suffice for doing some steel work? I can afford to spend a little bit more, uh, like on the uh, G0704, which is the, the bigger Grizzly mm-hmm. machine, the looks of things, uh, but not much more than that. Thank, thanks, guys. Love the podcast. Yeah, so like I'd previously said, oh, I don't know. But then one of our uh, listeners sent us a video of his G0704 with the heavy metal CNC conversion. Yeah. And it was like destroying some aluminum. Um, you know, like we've talked about this a little bit before, and I guess you don't get to experience this too much with your little machines. But with a bigger machine, when the cut is going well, you can hear it. It's just like, burr. You know, it's right. all low-frequency sound. There's no, like, high-pitched squealing. Um, and usually with the little machines, what you know, you want to hear that, but all you hear is, like, you know, like, horrible chattering yeah. noises, right? Yeah. But his machine, with that heavy metal CNC conversion, um, was, yeah, so he was taking cuts that were quarter-inch deep. I think they were three-eighths wide. Um, so six mil by nine millimeters, and it was just like purr, just purring through, um, wow. you know, a block of wow. aluminum. So the Geo seven hundred four is about five and a half grand. What the with the conversion? I think yeah, that's with the conversion. Yeah. Is it? right. Okay. Yeah, and you can buy that from Heavy Metal CNC. I'm pretty sure they have like a fully assembled, ready to go kit. 
Um, Scott, if you're still listening, that's maybe where you need to be going. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that would be a much more useful machine. It still doesn't have a tool changer. Um, and I think that, you know, unfortunately, you haven't had the experience of this yet. But once you go from a machine with no tool changer to a machine with a tool changer, it's very, very hard to go back. Okay. Um, yeah. You know, even if it's like four tools, because all of a sudden you can like drill a hole that's this size, you can machine you know, a 3D profile over here with a, a big ball end mill, and then you can, you know, cut it out with a small end mill. Whereas when you're limited to one tool, it's it really does hamstring you in terms of getting shit done, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I. But that being said, like at least that way, it would be like a real mill. Like you could do actual work on it. That being said, I still don't think that if you were if you have a house coming, I don't think that you're gonna want a little grizzly CNC conversion sticky around right, okay yes that makes sense <laughs> um yeah. but yeah i i was impressed with those conversions um i don't know how they were doing steel but given how i saw them performing in aluminum you know you'd have to take a much smaller cut but i think it would be fine cool so cool. i'd go for it we've got another from a rock solid scales i think most of these are knife makers that were called yeah Magnus. yeah it sounds um, like it do you want to read this one out sure uh, when you look at small machines such as the Tormac 1100MX and the Haas Mini Mill 2, what factors do you look at when making a decision which to purchase? With with the Haas being approximately 15k more expensive, I'm certain it's the better option. This would be for milling knives. Doubtful any hard milling would be happening, but you never know. Uh, and he says he wouldn't make more than about 100 knives a year. Does the Tormac fit this bill more than the Haas? Um, it's a good question. I mean, the so the Tormac and the Haas start getting kind of similar in price once you add like a tool changer and stuff to the Tormac. Mm. Um, I think at least it's been a while since I priced out the Tormac. Um, and yeah, like the the Haas is definitely going to be a much more capable machine so okay let's have a look at the tormac website really quick uh so without a tool changer it's nineteen thousand, and with the tool changer it's 31 like with wow. everything it's okay. 31 um whereas the haas mini mill sorry guys i'm just checking prices here real quick the mini mill i think is about 30 something it is. And that comes with the tool changer as standard. Yes. Yeah. So the standard mini mill is 21,900. No, no, that's no, the right. educational one. 28, 29,000. So like a standard mini mill is less expensive than a fully loaded Tormark. Hmm. Um, honestly, at that point, I'd say there's no context. No contest, rather. Like if you're looking at spending even close to the same amount, go with the Haas. Um, like the new Tormachs are pretty serious little machines, but they're still not at the same level of capability as, as the Haas. Um, you know, so like, if you want to make a really quick comparison, you can look at the spindle power, the weight of the machine, um, 
the travels, the tool changer capacity. I think actually the tool the the Tormac probably wins on the tool changer capacity because it uses a smaller tool. Um, the Tormac's a BT thirty rather than a Cat forty. Um, but yeah, I I don't know. That's a hard one. What do you think? <laughs> Have you had a look at both of them? Um, I've had a look at the the Tormac. Mm. Um, simply because it was, the, it was the lowest budget sort of serious machine, I suppose. Right. Um, but yeah, I haven't even looked at the house, so I, I wouldn't know. But you know, I I think if you can afford it, I think cheaping out just so you can get things going quicker could possibly give you more regret later on because you're sort of stuck where you are. And you'll always have that regret, maybe. Um, but I don't know. You know, with regards to the capability of the machines, I don't know. Yeah. I mean, the, the new Tormac machines are much more impressive than the old ones, that's for sure. Right. Um, so I'm just having a look through. It's like 300 inches per minute maximum feed rate on X and Y, 10,000 RPM, 2 horsepower spindle, um, and it's 18 by 11 inches in, in the work axis. Like in the travels, whereas the Haas is 16 by 12 inches and then 6,000 RPM spindle rather than 10, but it's a 7.5 horsepower spindle. It's probably not really a 7.5 horsepower, that's probably a peak rating, so it's probably more like 4, but mm. that's still a fair bit better. And then in terms of feed rates, it's 500 inches per minute feed rate for cutting and then 600 inches per minute rapids. So... Yeah, I mean, the, the Haas is, obje- like, measurably better. And if you were looking at spending the same kind of money, then I would say Haas. There we go. There we go. That's a hard one, though. That's a hard one. <laughs> Song Forge again on Instagram, um, says, I know you didn't ask, but and I think this is from a different podcast. Maybe. Yeah, I think Knife Talk is leaking over here. I think so. Um, he says, um, avoid talking about CNC machining or 3D printing in the presence of your phone unless you want Instagram to fill your feed with ads for machines. A buddy of mine and I took a class at our, our college covering uh, CNC machining, which naturally led us to talking a lot about it. But not only did ads suddenly start showing up for CNC mills and lathes, but at one point we had a conversation about HARS, and the minute we opened our Instagrams, we got ads for the exact HARS machines we discussed. It gets a little creepy sometimes. I'm, it I'm really curious does. about this. Because were they hmm. Googling stuff while they were talking about it? Well, I... I, I'm I'm quite curious because sometimes I think, well, they've clearly just been listening because I've I've just seen an ad. Mm. But I mean, there there is. I mean, my wife's got a psychology degree in the background. She, she told me there's some sort of bias where that's the way you're thinking anyway, and that's the way your mind is going. So if you if if you've done something, let's say you have been talking about a Haas machine, um, that 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 conversation didn't come from nowhere. That's mm. that's been sparked from something else that you've been doing, and your browsing and habits will have. Led exactly, the and to the same you know conclusion. the the AI between you know on on all these apps now that they can sort of foresee what you're going to be doing. Yeah. So maybe it's a coincidence, but it is spooky. Well, and there's spooky. no doubt too that you can say like, you know, hey Google or hey Siri, like your phone is listening. Yeah. But yeah. how much? I don't. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Look, yeah. I can tell you right now, if I had conclusive proof that my phone was suddenly showing me ads because of something I was talking about, I would mm. burn my fucking phone. 
Well, that's one way of looking at it. The other way of looking at it is I'm being served ads no matter what I do. <laughs> do I want to be served ads for, you know, a pair of leggings or do I want to be served ads for something that I'm interested in? Um, so, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in two minds about it. So you're not, you're not big on using ad block or anything like that? No, no, no. And, yeah. and I'm, I, I've got a bit of a sort of background in how ads are served as well. Mm-hmm. So, um, I mean, even with this podcast, there'll be an ad in here. Um, and the ad that you'll hear mm-hmm. in this podcast, you, the listener, have been selected for that ad. So let's say it's a, it's a Starbucks ad. Um, the, the, the company that are serving the ad, they know our listenership with regards to um, their rough age, their browsing habits, so therefore mm-hmm. their hobbies, what they're into. Um, so the um, you know they can they can put their ad spend on relevant people. So one listener may get a, well almost certainly will get a different ad to another person. We yeah. just for example in this podcast we mark put an ad here, and the the the, the ad agency will will put in the, the relevant ad for the relevant person. Um, so when you when you when you talk about you know you're talking about something and you open up your phone and immediately it's there. That's almost certainly just just by chance there is some creepy shit that goes on though like I'm, I'm sure you've seen companies that have like um little bluetooth devices that you can put in a retail store mm. that harvest like the bluetooth ids of every phone that comes near them and yep. then they can use that to track you down when you're online and serve ads to you about that store that you were in yeah like there's just there's almost no bounds to the lengths that advertisers and like ad companies will go to, to to hunt you down and serve you the most targeted ad possible. Yeah, and th- there was a time when people had all these little Bluetooth sort of beacons, mm-hmm. and you know, people were saying you know, there'd be a point where you know you can walk past a, a shop and they'll know and they'll be able to send you a push message saying you know twenty percent percent discount if you come in and show. And it's like, thankfully, most of these sort of well, well, certainly Apple, you know, with the, with the OS that they have, they, they've stopped that from happening. They were like, no, nah, exactly, yeah. yeah. But I think we're very close to that happening, like universally everywhere. And it was like, oh, that would have been a nightmare. Um, mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I, a lot of it is is by chance. Um, but any anything that you do, you, you there's data, there's value in that data, and it's being sold around to to everybody. Will take it. Mm-hmm. Oh, it's kind of funny too. So, like, you know, I I make money on my youtube channel from showing ads right like and the you know the money's not substantial um it's like a couple hundred bucks a month whatever but that money is is part of the reason why i keep doing youtube yeah and despite that i do have ad block for youtube installed on my (laughs) because like you know i i don't know what happened like i'm fine with like seeing one ad per video or something but then all of a sudden about six months ago it was like I'm seeing like 12 ads every video. Wow. And YouTube Premium. It's all about YouTube uh, Premium. Yeah, I guess I could. And apparently that's better for creators too. I haven't looked at the the actual mm. stats, but um, as a creator, um, if somebody's using YouTube Premium, they get a slightly more revenue than if you were to actually watch the mm. ad. Right. Um, and I, I'm fine with paying just, I, I, I think it's like five five dollars a month for YouTube Premium. Um, yeah, I will say given how much YouTube I watch, it might make sense. Yeah. Um, yeah, because like whenever you know, so for the 3D resin printing, I was like, you know, oh, how do these resins work? 
And so I went on YouTube and it, well, actually, I don't think I even asked that. I was like kind of thinking it in my head, but I hadn't actually asked the question yet. And then YouTube recommended me a video of a PhD chemist explaining how 3D printing resins work. Yeah. And that was a fucking awesome video. Yeah. It was like yeah. super informative, you know? So yeah, yeah. Uh, maybe I should do that. <laughs> We've got one last question from West of Nowhere. I think you should read this one. <laughs> <laughs> Can Aaron explain how he is an Australian that speaks fluently in feet and inches and pounds and seems to have left the metric system behind? <laughs> Speaking both languages is good, but regressing to imperial is disappointing, my friend. And he said afterwards, he was like, you know, I don't mean any offense. Like, I'm just asking. <laughs> you know what, buddy? Fuck you. <laughs> no, man, it's totally fine. Like, Honestly, like, it's weird. So, like, growing up in Australia, yeah, everything was centimeters and kilometers and meters, except when it was people's height and weight. Then it was feet <laughs> yeah. and pounds. Yeah. Um, and it's I don't know. It's the same in the UK. They, they, yeah. they swapped out. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know why that has stuck around, but it has. Like, my parents would say stone, you know, mm. oh, I'm, I'm three stone five today or something. I'm like, what the fuck is that? Like, I, yeah. I don't even know what that means, right? Um, <laughs> But then, 14 yeah, pounds. 14 pounds in a stone. And again, in the oh, UK, really? stone is, is the, the normal measurement. You ask somebody, how much do you weigh? It'd be stone, pounds, ounces. That's so weird. It's weird, isn't it? Yeah. But, you know, moving to North America. So, like, I'm in Canada, not America. But in Canada, technically, we should use the metric system here. And, you know, cars use kilometers and so on. And when I say, like, we're going on a road trip, we'll talk about it in kilometers. Like, speeds are in kilometers. But as soon as you go into a machine shop, everything's going to be imperial. Yeah. Um, you know, some machine shops, like aerospace machine shops, only use metric. And that's like a quality measure, I guess. But like, if you're buying tooling online or something, like metric stuff is more rare and more expensive. So why would you buy it? You know, like everything's mm -hmm. imperial. Um, and yeah, from that, I've just, you know, like all of the steel stock that I buy, like I, I can't buy metric steel stock. In Canada, like you, you just can't. Like everything's one eighth or a quarter or whatever. So, yeah, over time, I just lost it. I mm. lost the metric thinking in metric. You know, it's crazy how, yeah, how people's minds can flip between the two. I mean, all measurements for me are always, always uh, metric. You know, mm. um, growing up, my, you know, my dad would talk about inches and stuff. He's just like, I have got a clue what he's talking about. Um, so yeah, it it is pretty strange, but um, what a strange world we live in. I know, right? and yeah, for me growing up, it was totally metric. Like I thought about everything in metric till I came yeah. to Canada. Um, I will say though that even in Australia, like getting into knife making in Australia, the, the Australian knife makers that I interacted with all spoke imperial. Wow. Um, you know, because they were buying tools and materials and stuff from the states, which all came in imperial sizes, which is mm. interesting. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I mean, objectively, metric makes way more sense. <laughs> it like, does. It does. Like, how, 18 34ths of something, what the hell is that? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah it, you, it, learn the, you learn the, like, common fractions and their yeah. decimal equivalents. And then, you know, like, in a machine shop, you don't speak in fractions. You'll speak in thousandths. Yeah. So, like, something's a hundred thou, uh, you know, point one zero zero inches. Um, yeah. The the really mm -hmm. funny thing, I so I mean you've probably never had to deal with this, Craig, but if you want a full set of drills in Imperial, so let you need a full set of drills in every size to be able to just drill a hole 
you know, when you need to, right? Yeah. You have to have three complete separate sets of drills. Oh. You need uh, gauge drills, which are numbers one through 60. You need letter drills, A through Z. And then you need fractionals. Jesus. And the systems overlap. Like, so some of the um, gauge drills are, like, bigger than the smallest fractionals. Some of the smallest letters are... It's just stupid. Whereas, like, metric, you just get, like, 1, 1. 1. 1.2, 1.5, 1.7. So can you go into, like, a big box store there in in Canada and buy, like, a 5 mil drill bit? Um, I don't think so. Wow. You, you like imperial easy well the, the really funny thing is though if you want to get like a wire size drill bit so mm-hmm. you need like a number 43 which is like the the tappings i forget it's the tap size for one of the drills i think it's like no an 832 thread so that's like another thing right the, the thread sizes an 832 thread needs a number 43 drill as the pre-drill oh, um, but you can't buy that at a hardware store you cannot buy uh, a wire size drill at a hardware store. It's just right. not going to happen. You can only buy fractionals. So, yeah, it's it's stupid. Objectively, it's stupid. Yeah. Well, and on that note, I think that's a show. I think so. I Craig's think so. last show ever. I feel like we should be <laughs> drinking or something. Yeah, it's like the last day of school or something. Yeah, yeah. just like that. Well, um, we'll miss you, mate. Yeah, I, I will miss doing the show. I really will. I miss our catch-ups. I miss finding out what each other yep. are up to. And yeah, and it's just, you know, taking that time each week to sit and chat is nice. But it's finding the time, which is the, the stressful thing. Yeah, um, but yeah, I I'm, I will be an avid listener. Um, Good. Um, that was a CNC pun, by the way. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, but yeah, I'm excited to see what, what you're going to do with the show, where it's going to go and, and you know, who, you know who will be involved with the show and so on. It's, it's mm-hmm. going to be fun for me, too. Yeah. And, you know, and as I said, listeners, like, let me know what you want to see. And um, maybe I'll listen to you. Maybe I'll totally ignore you. We'll see. <laughs> right. It's, it's that's the Aaron way. Yeah. Thank you all for listening. and. Um, Aaron will speak to you soon. <laughs> Have a good week, all. Cool. Let me hit stop. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.